0: A note for all who are listening this podcast was recorded on February 1st, 2022. The science about COVID is constantly changing. So please always refer to your local health department, the CDC, and the state health department to follow the guidelines for your schools and families.
1: Welcome to Fireside Chats on the Young Mind, brought to you by Old Fire Health School. I'm Dorothy Stewart, founder and executive director of Old Fire Health School, and I am here with Alex Dutton, the program director for our Lafayette campus. Today, we have the great pleasure of interviewing Dr. Monica Gandhi. Dr. Gandhi is an infectious disease expert from UCSF. She is a frequent expert guest on local and international news channels concerning COVID. Dr. Gandhi has an MD from Harvard and a master's from UC Berkeley in public health with a focus on epidemiology. Currently, she is a professor of medicine and an associate division chief of HIV, infectious disease, and global medicine at UCSF. Dr. Gandhi, thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast.
2: Thank you.
1: This podcast is dedicated to a group of people who have been fairly ignored during this COVID crisis. I'm talking about preschool children, their parents, and their child care providers. We are seldom mentioned in the media or in public health pronouncements. And frankly, a lot of us are feeling confused and unsupported because guidance for the age group we serve is different from that for the K-12 population, which gets most of the attention. We are trying to follow guidance from our local public health departments, but are experiencing pushback from families when our policies differ from that of the public schools. So... We would really like to hear your point of view on several important issues. The first question that came up when we asked directors and parents to write to us was the fact that we've all heard about the possibility of later diabetes, the research on that with COVID, and we were confused about that. We're concerned about that. We also heard the early news reports linking COVID to multi-inflammatory syndrome. What is your assessment of the risk you see? to the population of children zero to five years old in contracting COVID? And what is the reinfection rate if that happens for the Bay Area's very young children?
2: So children are extremely low risk, as well as of diabetes from COVID. That study, by the way, from the CDC was really debunked. The methodology was extremely poor. So to go back to why children, especially under five, are so low risk from severe outcomes of COVID, it really has to do with biology. This is, by the way, very unusual. Every other virus that we've seen to date, measles, mumps, pertussis, diphtheria, uh, there's, some of those are bacteria and um, influenza. They all sort of affect extremes of age, older and younger. But there is something about COVID nineteen that spares the young and especially very young children. And why is that? It has to do with two reasons. One is that young children do not have in their nasal passages the receptor, which is called the ACE two receptor. They have very low concentrations of the ACE two receptor that takes in the virus. So because of that, they're less susceptible even to getting infected and certainly to getting what you need to get sick, which is having high amounts of virus in your system. The second reason, and this was covered in a Nature article really beautifully about innate immunity, but a lot of the pathology or why we get sick when we're older from COVID has to do with our immune response. It's why we use steroids to actually calm down our immune response in severe COVID in the hospital. That's a mainstay of treatment. And children don't have that, what we call, those particular features of innate immunity. In the state of California, no child under five throughout the entire pandemic has died of COVID and some countries, the almost the entire country, that's not true of the United States, but for example, in Germany, no child under five has died of COVID. So this is all good news for parents of young children, but they can still get, they can get infected. They can still get mild infections and it does manifest more like a cold or more mild infections in young children. And that can be very disruptive to a childcare center if you close for COVID. And that's right now policies in this country that we have to close for, for COVID and, and we have to quarantine. And in fact, they can't get immunized yet. So we have to quarantine for 10 days. And all of that made the winter very difficult for child care centers.
1: Yes, it really did. Let's go to another topic. How about what's the risk to the child care providers? Because we're in such close proximity to young children who are of course not very good at wearing masks or socially distancing. It's really hard to imagine any occupation which would put you closer to someone's breathing space than working in group childcare. Considering this, how much protection do vaccines, boosters, and masking provide to the providers?
2: Yes, because you're right. Adults are at risk for severe COVID and not young children. And so, that is why I actually didn't think that schools should be fully open like this until teachers could get vaccinated. But, but it is incredibly important to stress how well the vaccines work for the individual. So let me give you some data on that. There was a CDC study that looked at, this was published on January 7th in the MMWR, that looked at the rate of COVID-related severe outcomes if you had been vaccinated. And this was actually just with two vaccines. Now we recommend the booster. and the rate of COVID-related severe outcomes, either hospitalization or death, was 0.00003. So that's four zeros in a three. If you had even two doses of the vaccine's adults, who were most at risk of getting those severe outcomes? They were those who are severely immunocompromised or those over 75 with multiple comorbidities, renal insufficiency, lung problems were two among the most prominent risk factors. So what that means is, boy, these vaccines work extremely well and you really are protected from what was so scary about COVID um, was severe outcomes with the vaccines. And I think we haven't touted and told people how well the vaccines work enough. Personally, that's what I think. And then second is that there was a study from Israel just last week that showed us that you don't get long COVID symptoms if you have a breakthrough infection after vaccines, or at least your long COVID symptoms are equal to those who have had never had COVID at all. And this is a very large study that was summarized in nature and just shown to us last week. So long COVID doesn't seem to happen if you're vaccinated with a breakthrough and the vaccines work extremely well. So I think teachers should feel protected. Wearing masks during times of high circulation of virus, I think is prudent for the teachers. But our circulating rates are gonna come down like they have everywhere else with Omicron. So, We just have to get through a little longer.
0: Well, that's really reassuring. Thank you. Because I know a lot of my teachers, they're not necessarily concerned about hospitalization, but they're concerned about long COVID and, yes. and the longer term effects. So that's very reassuring.
2: And yeah. I'll send you this paper just so you can post it on your podcast, because I thought it was a really important study and probably the definitive study on it.
1: Wow. Yeah. So at the present time, what, did, what would your assessment be of the need for the masking of the children two to five years old, both inside and outside? Because we get different directions on that.
2: I I know, and so does the world get different directions, but I will say that the World Health Organization has never recommended masking for children under five, which would be your population. Hmm. The CDC is a unique outlier in being the only country that recommends two to five-year-olds be masked. And the reason that the CDC, sorry, the WHO actually doesn't recommend masking of young children is because there's so much less at risk, like I said. And it's actually what you just said. It's really hard for a young child to wear a mask properly. It gets wet and it um, and cloth masks aren't that effective. And those are the, the masks that we're recommending for young children. Mm-hmm. So it really, if you were anywhere else but the United States, you wouldn't be masking your young children. And then beyond that, it can become less effective if it's wet and cloth and hanging off. I know we've been doing this for two years now in this country, but again, it's only our country that does it.
0: I feel like the masking, and I've been told this by the public health department, that at least in our school, we have not had classroom transmission. We've had individual cases, but we've not had classroom transmission. And our health department has told me that that's not what they're seeing in other schools where masking is less often used in the classroom. So I do feel like we have seen at least that no children are getting very sick and we're not having to continue to close the classroom because, because I think that's the issue for a lot of families is that the masking at least protects their children and doesn't maybe trigger more closures because that's where we are right now where every time we have one exposure we have to close a classroom down for 5 to 10 days.
2: I think that's very fair with the current rules that you have to close the classroom which is what the current rules are for daycare centers to avoid that mask makes sense to me. I'm just pointing out what the rest of the world does.
1: So my next question is, if you were a child care provider, what steps would you take to try and keep both your teachers and the children in your care safe? Any extra precautions that you should be thinking about?
2: So, you know, I think that ventilation has been underplayed in this pandemic. And what I mean by that is, outside couldn't be any more safe and we live in the Bay Area so outside is possible and keeping the windows open is so profoundly important for every respiratory pathogen that would be influenza parainfluenza RSV every winter and I don't see a way where going forward we're not going to be emphasizing ventilation for classrooms and it does work better than wet masks or wet masks worn not properly so ventilation is my number one in terms of mitigation procedures and then the second is of course having all the teachers back vaccinated and boosted and and I really especially older teachers uh, over 50 should be all boosted that is the best that's the age group for which it's profoundly important because it really does reduce severe outcomes and then third masking the teachers because during times of high circulation and again I would just say that the circulation will come down and mask coming off and on with circulation coming down is also appropriate because children like to see the teacher's faces, but we have to go up and down with our cases.
1: So to flip this around a little bit, if you were a parent of an under five child in a childcare setting, what steps would you take to try and keep your child and any younger siblings at home
2: safe? So the best thing that we can do to keep children safe is actually our cells get vaccinated. It's very interesting. There was just a study in the UK that showed that you profoundly reduce transmission because a lot of the transmission to children occur outside the school setting. The most profound thing you can do to protect your child is really you as an adult be vaccinated and have the others in your household vaccinated. And then the vaccines for little children are coming. Yesterday, Pfizer announced that they are going to appeal for a two-dose series with a three-microgram shot while they're studying the third dose of a three-microgram shot because they actually are doing this because they recognize the bind that daycares are in. What has enabled 5- to 11-year-old schools to stay open more is that they don't quarantine children who've been vaccinated if they've had an exposure. You have to quarantine if you had an exposure, and it led to these daycares being so closed. And so I think that even just having the vaccine out, and parents will choose if they want a vaccine or not, will allow schools to stay open more. I would live your life if you have small children, because again, they are protected inherently by their biology from COVID. But the best thing that you can do to not get them infected, which actually disrupts their lives in a daycare setting and disrupts the daycare is for you yourself as an adult to get vaccinated. That is the single most important thing to prevent infection to your child, be vaccinated as an adult.
1: Thank you. I have one other question that's about testing. How often do you think childcare teachers and the families in childcare should get tested and the whole thing about the PCR versus the rapid test?
2: Yes. So essentially, what um, the policy lab at the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania did about two weeks ago, and they are really an amazing resource for how to keep children safe, is they said stop asymptomatically testing in schools. And the reason was because there have been large studies that showed that asymptomatic testing, not symptomatic, we have to test if a child's symptomatic, but asymptomatic testing did nothing to reduce transmission in schools because you just pointed out the problem with the tests. Someone could have a antigen test that is negative one day and positive the next day, or even positive four hours later, if they had enough virus in their nose. And PCR is too sensitive. It picks up little bits of virus in the nose that may not be clinically significant either to the child or to be able to spread. So because of the limitations of our tests, we haven't found a benefit of what's called asymptomatic testing, like weekly surveillance or bi-weekly surveillance. Because of that, the CDC hasn't caught up with them, but the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania has said no more asymptomatic testing in any school setting. Now, I don't know what it will take for the Bay Area to catch up with that, but San Francisco has, for example. So we don't do asymptomatic testing in our schools. We do, because of the CHOP guidelines, we do uh, what's called symptomatic testing. So again, only test if someone's symptomatic. I have a child in school here. And if a child is symptomatic, then they have to test, and so and stay out of school, of course. So that would reduce absences, and I really think the policy lab is correct on this. And I think all schools in the spring like a semester are going to stop asymptomatic testing.
1: Thank you. Okay. So, Alex, you have some follow-up questions.
0: Um, there are just one or two questions about the vaccine. So I can hear that it's it's starting to roll out and. Any thoughts about, you know, what do you think the timing will be? And we have a couple of kids now that have had COVID. Do you think them having COVID is going to affect when they should get the vaccine?
2: Yes. So I think the timing will be at least according to Pfizer yesterday and the FDA end of March when it would be available and it would be a tiny dose, it's three micrograms. What 12-year-olds and up get is 30 micrograms of the Pfizer vaccine, and what 5 to 11-year-olds get is 10 micrograms. So it's a very small dose, and it would be two doses for very little ones, six months to two-year-olds, and then it'd be three doses between two and four. Now, in terms of having had COVID, actually having had COVID, which a lot of children have, is very protective against future reinfection, to be fair, and in fact, um, there are many places that are not going to roll out the child vaccine or are only doing it for those who have not been infected before. I think what this country will do, though, is recommend instead that you get one dose if you've been infected before. I think that's what they're going to do. Or at least that's what I would recommend. And I would wait three months after infection, 90 days before getting the dose because you can get too high of antibodies if you've just been infected and you can have more side effects of getting a dose. So that's the recommended period for the CDC, 90 days before you get a dose.
0: Um, And then just another question about quarantines in general, like, do you see that as being something that we will continue to do, whether it's 10 days, 14 days, five days, do you think that that's going to continue to be helpful in keeping people safe?
2: So I have to say that again the Children's Hospital Pennsylvania Policy Lab also said eliminate quarantines. And the reason that they did that is you saw how disruptive it was. Mm-hmm. If a child's had an exposure, keeping them out 10 days and that's the the requirement if they're not vaccinated is extremely disruptive even 5 to 11 year olds can come back sooner than that because they can get vaccinated. So it really is a risk versus benefit analysis in deciding what we do with COVID and they've come down pretty hard and in fact I think they're going to also this week recommend mask optional for kids in daycares, like we were talking about before. But this is, I think, the, the place to look to. It's David Rubin at the Children's Hospital in Pennsylvania Policy Lab, and they say no more quarantine. So they started recommending it this winter. But again, a lot of people haven't followed those recommendations. I think spring semester, we shouldn't do any asymptomatic testing nor quarantines if you've had an exposure. Again, just isolate if you're sick. the world's going to go towards that. Isolate if you're sick. The UK has already made that decision. No more quarantines. No one has to tell anyone if they've had an exposure. It's all kind of going back to where we used to live in the world, which is isolate if you're sick. Don't go to school.
0: So just hopefully it moving towards being more endemic. Correct.
2: That's exactly the phrase that what endemic management means is managing it like we manage any other respiratory virus, pro-influenza, influenza, RSV other adenoviruses, and going towards that endemic management will be profoundly less disrupted to society and is indicated when you have enough immunity among those who are likely to get sick, which is adults. And so I know the U.S. hasn't done it, but the U.K. did it two weeks ago, and the European CDC equivalent just put out a series of guidelines that said we need to go to endemic management all over Europe. So the U.S. will do it at some point, but that endemic management kind of just goes back to good old principles. Don't go to work or school when you're sick.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Gandhi, for your insights. And we're going to use those to inform our decisions, although we are still under the guidance of the public
2: health department. That's Mm -hmm. right. You're Mm -hmm. stuck right now. (laughs) And it makes your life very difficult. Yeah,
1: not us to change the rules, but thank you so much. Um, Thank
2: you. It was great to talk to you. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to Old Firehouse School's Fireside Chats on the Young Mind. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and also follow Old Firehouse School on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Take care.